I'm Catherine Morton, Head of Trade, Treasury and Risk at TXF. I'm joined by Stephen Beck, who is Head of Supply Chain at uh, ADB. Thank you very much, Catherine. Well, it's lovely to see you again. Um, we're, we're here in Beijing. Um, tell me yes. a little bit about what the ADB's been up to in, in terms of, of trade recently. So on the trade business, Catherine, you may recall that, uh, that the business has really has scaled. Um, so we grew, uh, depending on the measure, between 35 and 40 percent in 2017, and then we grew by the same amount last year. Um, so last year we did 4,500 transactions, supporting $6.2 billion in trade. Um, and uh, of the 21 countries we're active in, the most active are Bangladesh, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan. We don't assume risk in the relatively easy markets like China and India and Thailand, Malaysia, um, at least not in the trade business. So tell me a little bit about um, yeah, what, 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 what sort of uh, instruments you've been using? What, uh, well, we provide guarantees and yeah. loans to banks, mm -hmm. and the vast majority of our portfolio, over 90%, is on the guarantees. Um, uh, and it's all covering FI risk, so vanilla trade finance. But the, the thing I wanted to mention is after all that growth, those two years of, of you know, hell of a lot of growth, the first quarter's been pretty flat, mm. um, which is interesting. Now, one can't grow indefinitely you know, at those kinds of rates, those kinds of levels. But um, but I thought it was interesting. That, no, that absolutely. The first I mean, when we talked last year, it was very much th that rate of growth. You were ascribing a certain amount of it to the de-risking problem that had happened with the correspondent relationships of banks. Do you think that's plateaued out now? Is that or, or, is no? That well, apparently the uh, the statistics suggest that de-risking is continuing. It may have sort of decelerated a little bit because of a lot of relationships have already been severed but it continues unabated. And, um, uh, you know, Gavin, you may recall that we do this um, study to quantify what the market gaps are in trade finance. The last one we put out was in 2017, um, which um, suggested a, a global gap of 1.5 trillion, right? From 1.6 the year before. Yeah. And, and you've had a two-year gap. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to be um, uh, putting out uh, a new one later on this year, probably in September. Okay. So it'll be interesting to see what that figure is. Um, but when we ask people what's the primary reason for the gap um, and you know, what are the impediments to financial institutions closing those gaps, consistently we hear that it's around the AML, Anti-money laundering. Yeah. Anti-money laundering, counter-financing of terrorism, measures that have been put in place. Mm. And as you know, what financial institutions are finding is that complying with those requirements, while it's important, um, have unintended consequences. Uh, because it is so uh, uh, onerous to, to conduct that due diligence, um, and because in, in many cases it's very difficult to do on, on SMEs um, and costly, you know, naturally, financial institutions, you know, frankly, don't bother with a lot of smaller transactions, SMEs, and and in emerging markets. Mm. Um, so, um, so we've launched a, a major sort of initiative 
to try to tackle some of these persistent problems in AML uh, CFT. Um, we got uh, some regulators and some banks together in Singapore um, a couple of weeks ago to try to address uh, persistent problems, namely um, uh, price validation, non-customer due diligence, um, uh, KYC, uh, 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 overcompliance by banks. Overcompliance. Overcompliance. So those are those are cases where, you know, the regulator doesn't necessarily uh, want to sort of impose certain requirements on a bank, but the bank's compliance department or legal department feels that they should be going an extra step just mm. to be sort of super cautious, mitigate the risk of, you know, some multi-billion-dollar fine, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but due to a lack of, sort of communication and clarity, um, I think we are seeing some banks sort of over-complying, um, and so there are instances of de-risking, um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, activities that are contributing to the gap that aren't necessary. Mm. What do you think the results mm. of that meeting was then? Do well, they were very, very concrete. I mean, the idea of the meeting was not just to chat about it, but just to, uh, but to figure out exactly what it is that we wanted to do. And so I'm going to show you that one of the outcomes is that we want to try to standardize the reporting of suspicious activities uh, uh, transactions. They're called SARS. SARS, S-A-R, okay. Yeah, yep. suspicious uh, uh, activity reports. Okay. And these are reports that banks have to submit to regulators on, um, on a monthly basis. And what we understand is that banks are putting a great deal of resources into um, into collecting information to provide these reports, and that the results of the reports, meaning for prosecutions, putting bad guys in jail, mm. um, and confiscating uh, uh, you know, land and property and, and money and so on is negligible. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, are the banks using vast amounts of resources um, to collect this information, which again does have negative consequences, right, on SMEs and, sure. and, and others, um, with questionable results, right, catching bad guys. Yeah. And so what we're hoping is that if we can get the regulatory and banking communities together to agree on a sort of a standard, more standardized template, um, that A, it'll, it'll make it easier and cheaper um, and less onerous to provide these reports, and B, hopefully we're going to be able to start to see, you know, which of those, those elements of the SARS are really providing prosecutors with the information they need to put bad guys in jail yeah. or confiscate, you know, uh, ill-gotten Gains and you know. so, so which regulators are we are we talking about in terms of uh, state regulators? Well, we had the Financial Stability Board there, mm -hmm. um, and uh, MAS, HKMA, Austrac. Um, we had regulators from Bangladesh and uh, and Thailand there as well. Egmont Group was recommend uh, was represented. Mm. Um, Wolfsburg was there, BAFT, ICC, um, and uh, a number of the 
So well, the organisation still get stuff done, parts. yeah, which is which is very encouraging. And, uh, and what's the timeline for, for for developing something on this? Well, we've got um, uh, we're aiming certainly for the end of this year mm. to have have something together. We actually have here September thirtieth, but let's let's see. I'm saying end of the year. Stuff <laughs> slips. So that's that's one exciting thing that we're we're working on. Then the other one is to develop a feedback loop. Um, for the reports. So after the banks submit the reports, and I think even a lot of the regulators after they submit um, to prosecutors, they don't know what the result is. They don't know what uh, what's happened with these reports. So the thinking is if we can if we can create a feedback loop from the prosecutors to the regulators to some kind of a supranational regulator, then perhaps something could be published at least on an annual basis that in aggregate would give people a sense for how you know uh, actionable and useful the the specific elements mm -hmm. to the report are so that again we can start honing finite resources onto what's really material and making a difference. Does, does this feed back at all into the traders and asset class discussions? Uh, you know, how, how, uh, or, or, or is this um, something that would credit work related? In yeah. But I mean, you know, I was at the uh, at this FATF uh, plenary uh, earlier this year, and I can tell you that a lot of regulators are wanting to have a closer look at the role that trade-based money laundering is playing. Mm. in the uh, global economy and so you know you ask you know so I think in terms of an asset class yes it'll, I, it may be helpful in terms of understanding what role you know trade-based money laundering is playing in crime and in terrorism um, so in that sense I think it would be helpful yeah. but not on the credit side more on the AML KYC side which is a risk yes right it's not a credit risk but it's a risk so yeah, I think that's an interesting way of, of thinking yeah. about it. Actually, I mean, uh, I guess they're all of a piece with 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 was also the, the the data you're producing on the the trade finance gap itself and bringing how to get encourage SMEs to bring deals to market or how to encourage banks to to bank those SMEs in order to get them to market. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It was an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, we, uh, you know, that we created the trade finance register, right? Where yes. we the 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 loss and the, the default statistics on trade finance, and that was uh, hopefully continues to be helpful in terms of understanding trade finance as an asset class. Um, and yeah, maybe it, it, this is a good way of thinking about that. Because um, it's certainly an excuse that the banks that use not to finance trade. Yeah. Yeah, so no, it's a, a very good point. So, so that's the second thing, and that also we hope to have done, certainly before the end of this year. Mm. Um, and then um, on the uh, the uh, non-customer due diligence, we want to promote the legal entity identifier. Um, we want to do it. We want to sort of ratchet it up a notch. Yeah, where's um, that at now? Because I mean, I I, I see GLEIF uh, around. I mean, uh, at what level are uh, uh, is it is it gaining traction within within uh, within our sector? It is gaining traction, but uh, but not at the clip that is needed for it to make a material difference in you know in closing gaps. Um, so I mean, we'd we'd really like for you know a combination of things to happen. Either the G20 
to legislate a requirement for um, all importing and exporting companies to have an LEI mm. uh, and or the banking community to say, look, I'm sorry, you can't be a client of ours unless you have an LEI. So later on this month, we're going to publish a survey that we did of uh, companies uh, to understand how easy or difficult is it to get one of these LEIs and how much it costs. So um, the focus of our study was emerging markets. Um, so we went to, because often, you know, when you say to people, we should legislate a requirement, right? They say, well, can SMEs get it? And can they get it in like Fiji and Cambodia and places like that? So, you know, frankly, we didn't really know the answer to that. So that's why we did the survey. And the survey basically says, yes, um, uh, SMEs in Cambodia and Bangladesh and, and Samoa can acquire an LEI. It's not a total pain. It's done in, uh, within a reasonable period of time and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. In fact, 66% of the respondents said it cost $75 and less oh, that's good. to get the initial number and then on an annual basis it's, you know, it's considerably less. Mm. So we're releasing that later on this month and hopefully that's going to help the debate um, around um, driving uh, global adoption. Um, but the, the thing that we want to do and we discussed doing out of Singapore with the group was coming up with a a clearer, more cohesive um, marketing strategy to really understand, or rather better explain, the benefits um, to SMEs and other companies of acquiring one of these numbers. Because mm. I think the marketing has been a bit lacking. Yes, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah so how are you developing the actual quality of, uh, of the banking industry in, in Asia? Well, we do provide a lot of training um, and technical assistance to, uh, to banks uh, in our developing member countries. Uh, we do that on trade finance, supply chain finance, uh, risk management, um, on sustainable trade. Um, and now we're going to be launching a fair bit of training on uh, anti-money laundering and CFT. Because that's also a big part of the problem is that there isn't a, you know, sufficient confidence that uh, that banks in some of these countries have the, the know-how to really conduct a proper KYC and, and proper due diligence on the clients that they're onboarding. Um, that's, that, that's part of it. And one last question on a more global level. Two years ago, we were witnessing, when we were, when we were in Indonesia at the ICC, uh, we were witnessing the early stages of trade wars in, in general and the whole uh, trade weaponization and trade as, 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 as something of a, uh, becoming a much more political hot potato. How have you seen these things panning out? Uh, do you think there's more, more information uh, but are, or are people more scared of trade? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see this, uh, this play out, and of course it continues to play out. I think the longer that it plays out, the more of a drag it is on, on, on sentiment, right? Um, and that, that sort of drag uh, means that, that people are less inclined to make you know, investments in, in other countries, which, which leads to, to trade. Um, uh, and of course, it, it makes people nervous, and, uh, and it represents a drag on growth. Um, so it's 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 clearly not a good thing. 
And the longer it, it persists, I think the more impact it has. And, and you know, I think the IMF and certainly uh, ADB's uh, development outlook, which was released last week, sort of indicates that uh, that that sort of sentiment around around trade is having a drag on on global growth. On the positive side, I mean, I think that um, you know, to a certain extent, uh, you know, there are some advantages in in Asia in that it's encouraging more uh, focus on intra-Asian trade. And if you look at the FDI, the foreign direct investment within Asia, um, it's, uh, it's actually up um, over last year. And, uh, and that is going to lead to more trade and underpin the, the trend that we've seen for you know, over the past decade uh, for intra-Asian trade to, becoming, uh, to, be, to play a more and more prominent role in global trade. I mean, now I think it's 15% of, of, of global trade and it continues to, to increase. So, you know, obviously the, the trade tensions aren't good. And the longer they, uh, they persist, the, the more damage it's going to, it's going to have. Um, but uh, Asia remains resilient and I think that intra-Asian trade is going to continue to, uh, to, to grow. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you.